breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze.com's podcast network. It is always an honor to be with you. Thank you for joining me. This is the place you can come to find that American Muslim who's fearless against radical Islam, who will address the root causes, who will talk about the things that the free speech police, the politically correct, will not address on mainstream media, will not address when you talk about root causes, and often will make whining complaints about Islamophobia or whatever that is. This is an American Muslim who loves my faith, loves my country, and feels that radical Islam is a Muslim problem that needs a Muslim solution. If you're looking for solutions, this is the place to start. If you're looking for apologetics, you've come to the wrong place. Yes, we'll look at solutions. Yes, we'll talk about problems. You need to understand the diagnosis to get to the treatment. This is Dr. Jasser, so I will give you treatments, solutions for the ideological struggle, I think, of the 21st century, which is the theological debate within Islam, within the House of Islam. And the way to solve this is to take sides within the House of Islam. This week is no different than any other. We've had a lot of opportunities to educate, to learn about the battles that we're fighting. And I want to start first with the obvious, the obvious one, which is, as we heard in the last few weeks, the Mueller report was released, as we see folks through an ADD response of, oh, collusion, no collusion, it seems that President Trump was vindicated. But I'm not going to go there. What was lost in all this noise? The caliphate actually died. The Islamic State ISIS, that then shortened its name to ICE, <laughs> Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, died. It doesn't exist anymore. Well, it exists ideologically. That's what I want to talk to you about. But there's no doubt that this moment was a long time coming. The last bastion that it existed in Raqqa, that it existed in one small area, finally was taken by the Syrian Democratic Forces, which was mostly Kurdish. And, again, was appropriate credit given to, why wasn't this done during the Obama administration? Why was most of the territory in which ISIS was defeated, was defeated in 2017 after Secretary Mattis took over the Pentagon, after President Trump was elected? Well, it's because President Obama really didn't care about effectuating military victory in Syria or Iraq. He actually withdrew troops as much as he could out of Iraq, if not nearly completely creating a vacuum that allowed ISIS to spread. He actually did everything possible not to confront Assad after chemical weapons use, after Russia's encroachment and assistance of the genocidal tyrant Bashar Assad, who takes sport he and his military and basically gunning down civilians to the tune of 600,000 over a seven-year civil war going on eight years, over eight years now, 
started March 11, 2011. And yet we saw the vast majority of the defeat of ISIS was not done by Assad, who actually flourished in in allowing ISIS to run rampant so that he could legitimize the, the decimation of other neighborhoods in Damascus and Aleppo and Homs and Homa, I'm sorry, Homs and Haman all over Syria. No. Did Russia relish in trying to end ISIS? <laughs> Not at all. Look at the bombing patterns that the United States State Department showed of what was being bombed in Syria. It was not ISIS by Assad and Russia. How about Iran and the tens of thousands of troops that were Hezbollah and Khomeinists that came through Iraq? Did they fight ISIS? Perhaps here or there, but they certainly had no no role in ending ISIS or even trying to bring about its end. Again, nothing strengthened Assad, Iran, Russia more than allowing ISIS to flourish. So, it took a coalition strategy, coalition leadership by Secretary Mattis, that actually effectuated, again, 80 to 90% of our victory happened in 2017 during the Trump administration. That started, I'll remind you, in January 20, 2017. And then that last territory was finally taken back by the Syrian Democratic Forces. And you saw in two weeks, in the last week or two, videos of Kurds, of others cheering the end of ISIS, cheering the defeat of what's one of the most grotesque incarnations of humanity to ever exist, which was the Islamic State, the Caliphate. And sure, some of the mere image of ISIS, which was Assad and Hezbollah, were cheering too. But you notice their cheering was muted because they, as much as they tried to take credit, the credit goes to the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Kurds and the Americans and the coalition of French, British and others that fought through special forces. And to President Trump's credit, again, some of us were a little miffed that he had talked about removing all of our presence in Syria and now has agreed to leave 1,000. There were 2,500 max. And that's all we said. That's all I said was, leave some in there. We need intelligence on the ground. We need a deterrent against the regrowth of ISIS, the regrowth, the positioning of Hezbollah to threaten Israel, the positioning of Assad and others to threaten and allow the regrowth of threats against Israel and threats against the United States. So, we saw very little coverage this week of the end of the caliphate. Why? Mainstream media does not want to give President Trump credit for effectuating, allowing our Pentagon to bring closure to that. Now Secretary Mattis has left, and we see different leadership at the Pentagon, but bottom line is, is his legacy will be the end of ISIS. President Trump's legacy will be the end of ISIS. Does that mean, what does that mean for the battle against radical Islam? So that's the other thing I want to talk to you about is, I'm sure you heard me say this before on this program, 
the battle against radical Islam until we deal with political Islam is a whack-a-mole program. It is a complete whack-a-mole program. And if you don't know what a whack-a-mole is, remember the circus, the little games that you play where you pound the mole down that it pops up? Well, it's a whack-a-mole. And sure enough, ladies and gentlemen, this week, Al-Qaeda issued a 42-page new magazine, PDFs with maps of dark green states that were Muslim, that are Muslim majority through the Middle East and North Africa on the cover. And in Arabic, it says, Ummah Wahida. Ummah Wahida. One Ummah. Ummah is Muslim community, or it can mean one state, or it can mean caliphate. So ladies and gentlemen, the jihadi, the viral jihadis that are all over the world are still there. The jihadist movement has not changed. It's still flourishing in vacuums without an alternative. Al-Qaeda is now jockeying because ISIS's branding suffered a major, major setback in the last few weeks. They were basically publicly humiliated. They lost landmass and any ability to say that they control land. So the caliphate is gone. Now, is caliphate simply landmass? No, it is an idea. It is a consciousness. So the ISIS caliphate consciousness continues. Now, the caliphate is is a consciousness within jihadis. It can exist in gangs, uh, the jihadi cool concept. It can exist in al-Qaeda. Remember, al-Qaeda is the base, as it means in Arabic. So the base of operations globally for jihadism can be wherever they say it is. So now... These jihadists are going to scatter. Remember, Al-Shabaab, three, four years ago, gave its loyalty to ISIS. So a lot of these radical, Al-Shabaab's out of Somalia, a lot of these radical Islamists now are going to be open to looking for global leadership in which to inspire what they do. And this magazine, put out through jihadi channels, has its first issue inspired by many prominent Al-Qaeda scholars, as was reported across many counterterrorism researchers. And they put on the cover the names of prominent scholars of Salafi jihadism. So, I say Caliphate 2.0 is on the way back. Who's going to lead it? Nobody knows, but I think we should have learned from President Bush's experience that the mission accomplished across the, the front of a carrier after we took down a militant genocidal dictator like Saddam Hussein, while a moral thing to do, created vacuums that would be refilled and refilled and refilled again and again and again, regardless of what comes up in the place. So does that mean we just sort of cozy up to dictators? No, I disagree with that. I talk about how do you prevent the whack-a-mole? How do you prevent Caliphate 2.0? And as they say here, Ummah Wahida, the one Ummah, the rebranding of Caliphate to become the Ummah 
And this is not a new concept, right? From the beginning of Islam, the leaders of the Islamic communities have talked about one ummah. I mean, the ummah concept can be a good one. After the New Zealand shooting, the terror act that killed 51, injured tens of others, we saw Muslims all over the planet, including in the United States and mosques, come together with Jews and Christians and people of faith, saying an attack on one faith is an attack on all. You saw sermons talking about when one, one part of the body is infected or sick, the rest becomes sick. So there are some good aspects to that from a spiritual, educational, sociological perspective. All faith communities thrive, be it the Catholic faith community globally, the Baptist community, the Jewish community thrive on the sense of brotherhood and sisterhood of their community. But when it mixes with state, when it mixes with theopolitics, and especially the flag and nationalism, it is a vicious witch's brew. And that is the brew that is the Islamic State. Islam is still pre-Jefferson, if you will. Jefferson's statement on the wall of separation. I tweeted a missive to uh, the Pope this week. The Pope wrote about the evil nature of walls that people who build them will only be building a prison around themselves, he said. And I said, well, the greatest wall that I know is the wall talked about by Jefferson, which is that wall of separation that prevents the establishment of a church through government. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously. So, yes, the Catholic Church still has a pope that dabbles in politics and starts to interfere in geopolitics of a country far away from his state in Rome that has a nice wall around it, by the way. But I think the West's success in democracy was based on that separation. Not a separation of people from their theological ideas and government, but rather a ummah, a community, and its state identity need to be separated. And I think that's one of the successes of Western democracy is that American identity was not tied to religious Christian identity. The word Christian doesn't appear in our founding documents, and I would say Muslims have a lot to learn from that. There are ways to be inspired by your faith, to be moral, to be ethical, to have values that are that are Judeo-Christian Islamic in their honesty and integrity and humility, but without doing it through an Islamic Sharia, Islamic legal exegetical process, but rather through reason through simply proving that that is the best law, whatever it might be. And that's how common law evolved versus canonic law. And I think similarly Muslims need to go through the same process. But I do believe that 
as you see now, a jockeying for the global jihadist movement that's happening. This jockeying will need to begin. Ladies and gentlemen, you will not see any change in this cycle for hundreds of years. Radical Islamist group created, takes over land, chops off heads and limbs, creates a quasi-government, and then we have to defeat it after multiple terror attacks. Saudi Wahhabi ideology, Jamaat Islamiyah ideology out of Pakistan, Khomeinist ideology out of Iran spreads, creates other Islamic states with an Islamic flag, and a Sharia state that's draconian, creates acts of terror, fuels a eschatological approach to its creation, and then the West has to defeat it. And at some point, something's going to break that cycle. Either the West, because of weakening of its own economies and defense, begin to withdraw, or the Islamic states ascend. How do we break that cycle? Well, I tell you that we break the cycle with what I call three I's. Identity, ijtihad, and inspiration. Identity. Muslims begin to have an identity with their state, not based in Islam, but based in their national cohesion, in their national constitution, in their national social contract. That's how I became the American that I am, is I understood that my friends, my neighbors, my colleagues, professional, social, friendship, and in the military that I joined. I joined the military because this country protected my identity to be what I wanted to with God, to accept or reject any of the tenets that I believed and gave me the freedom through that identity, through that national identity. ISIS grabbed that identity from Muslims and created an Islamic state and told them to die for their jihad. So we need to not only defeat their Islamic state and caliphate as we did, but another one's going to come up as Al-Qaeda is trying now unless we begin to try to engage Muslims in their identity as Egyptians, as Syrians, as Saudis, as Emiratis. As Pakistanis, what does that identity mean? Right now, it's either a secular military or a monarch based in fealty to slavery, rather, slavery to a, a, a tyrannical government or a theopolitical state, Sharia state of an Islamic identity. Both of those need to be rejected for a liberty-based identity, an identity based in reason. The second eye. Ijtihad, I-J-T-I-H-A-D, Ijtihad. Ijtihad is the, the Islamic scholarly concept of reinterpretation and interpretation of Islamic law, of Islamic sirah, which are stories of the Prophet, and Quranic interpretation, hadith, all the theological texts, reinterpreting them in light of modern day. Ijtihad, renewal. 
renewal. So is reform revivalism of what it was under the prophet in the sixth, sorry, seventh century? Or is it reform, forward thinking, new thinking? The Saudis, the Salafi jihadis would call that bid'ah, inventions of something that isn't there in the faith. And I respond to that by saying, how could it be bid'ah when you take on computer, medical, and other forms of scientific knowledge without batting an eye that you will create new highways and and buildings and structures using new engineering, computer, and other types of sciences, but yet you reject new political science. That's absurd. So the question for Ijtihad, the second I, the first I is identity. The second I, Ijtihad, is what would you do? What do we believe the Prophet would do if he were alive today? So Al-Qaeda is already putting out magazines trying to tell folks that the one Ummah is their caliphate 2.0. Now, the 2.0 is my twist on that, but that's actually what's happening right now. You're starting to see across the world are going to be a jockeying about who's running the Islamic State, the new Islamic State. And like all vacuums that get filled, say hello to the new boss, much like the old boss. The Islamic establishment continues to be corrupt, theocratic, and unchanged because there's very little traction for reform. How do we get traction? The third I is inspire. At the top, Al-Qaeda magazines, ISIS magazines, they use the term inspire for their magazines. And now, in this one, it was inspirational, they say. This is the new inspiration for the new Ummah. Ummah Wahida, the one Ummah. So, how do we inspire the next Muslim generation to be Western, to be modern, to reject theocracy, to reject the Islamic State, the Sharia State? We're doing nothing, ladies and gentlemen. If you think that we are currently working on inspiring a next generation to be libertarian, to believe in freedom and liberty and reject theocracy, then you are living in a fantasy land or on a different planet because our counterterrorism is doing none of that. We have no strategy to inspire the next generation. And this is not a small thing. You may say, well, there's only 4 million Muslims. Why do we care? Let's just prevent them from attacking us. Well, this is why we have the largest agency in the planet, at least in our government, I should say, the largest agency in the American government dedicated to homeland security, created all after 9-11, why? Because you're trying to prevent acts that are inspired by an ideology that has a fertile ground of a quarter of the world's population. So it's not that most Muslims are terrorists. No, it's somewhere around 5-10% believe in the violent achievement of their Islamic states. However, what portion of Muslims believe in some form of Sharia or Islamic State, probably 30-40%, which is somewhere between 5 and 700 million out of the 1.7, 1.6 billion Muslims. The rest, I believe, reject. It's a, I think a majority reject the Islamic State concept, but 
Are they united? Do they believe in one state? In Egypt and Saudi to reject the one ummah of the Sharia state that the Al-Qaeda and the ISIS are trying to recreate and recreate until they either bring Armageddon down through an eschatology. Remember, even the Khomeinis, I'm talking about now Sunni radicals of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, but you've got the Shia radicals that are no different. Hezbollah, the Khomeinis, the Shirazis, whatever they are, they believe. When Ahmadinejad talked at the UN, he always said, may the 12th Iman come. 12th Iman comes when the world is perishing and the Middle East is ablaze. So, these people don't really care about order and freedom and liberty. They they just want chaos. And they'll do anything to bring on more and more chaos. So, it's time, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, President Trump deserves credit for allowing the defeat of ISIS by our Pentagon, by our leadership and the coalition. The Kurdish forces and the Syrian Democratic forces deserve credit for what they did. But are we going to see in the next few years another recurrence of some type of radical Islamist group? We probably will. Another form of Al-Qaeda, Jamaat Islamiyah, outgrowths of Hamas, Hezbollah. You pick the radical Islamic group that is going to resurface stronger than ever. Because the ideology of jihadism is going to continue as the verbiage of and the ideology and the propaganda of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, anti-Westernism is spread from Al Jazeera across the planet. The greatest radicalizing force of media propaganda right, on, right now, I believe, is Al Jazeera out of Qatar. If you look at viewers and the type of ideas that it's spreading, which is demonization of the American military, demonization of Israel, demonization of Western interests in NATO. If you look at the influence that Erdogan now is growing in his radicalism and is having, and, and, and the influence merges with Qatar's influence as Turkey and Iran and Qatar, and Qatar are working together. We have no counter. We have no strategy to counter those ideological threats. None of our major media across the Middle East is even beginning to even hold a candle to what these folks are doing with radical Islamist ideas. And now we have two congresswomen that are Islamists. Rashida Tlaib out of Detroit and Ilhan Omar out of Minnesota that are basically towing the line of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, and anti-Westernism. Rashida Tlaib this week retweeted Zahira Baloo, the head of CARE, Council on American-Islamic Relations, San Francisco. And Baloo notoriously, three years if not more, on Memorial Day tweeted that she did not have the stomach to celebrate or recognize a holiday that recognized American soldiers who she believed died in unjust wars and were evil. This is an American. And this is an American 
Muslim who was retweeted and not only retweeted, Rashida Tlaib said she will speak truth to power on her behalf and protect her. And I reminded her that actually people of Congress, members of Congress do not protect us. Our military does, the the same military that Zahira Balu repudiates and hates in a bigoted way against this country. Last, and I think these issues are connected, but I've talked to you before about free speech. I am very, very worried, continue to be worried about the ability of us, even when we're not even on the field, ladies and gentlemen, to fight this as free speech becomes more and more infringed as the blasphemy police of the Islamists seem to have more and more influence in what is said and what cannot be said. And this week, we saw Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, put out a press release and statements that even made me more afraid. He said, Governments need to play a more active role in regulating the Internet. He urged more countries to adopt versions of sweeping European rules aimed at safeguarding user privacy. And social media companies have long, long supposedly resisted government intervention, and now they're talking about welcoming it. I guess it's the same companies that seem to allow it in China and elsewhere, but they seem to have double standards when it comes to the U.S., and now they're trying to enter that here. And there's no doubt that the playbook, when you become really, really big, is as we see in oil industries and others, they end up working with the kleptocrats of the world and trying to endear themselves to the kleptocrats in Washington as big companies are known to become the masters of regulation because when they set up the regulations, it ends up helping them. We see this with pharma. We see it with insurance companies and healthcare, every industry that gets intertwined into the early regulatory process is set for generations. And that's what Facebook is doing. And I tell you, listen, as somebody who believes that the future of the Middle East is in chaos, that the the hope for the Middle East, I think, is in chaos. What do I mean by that? The more disruption, the better. You will put dictators on their heels like we did in 2011 when there's chaos. Now, as long as they don't have nuclear weapons, we're safe. Let them have civil wars. Let them have significant disruption. Remember, as messy as it's been, President Trump was able to disrupt the establishment in Washington because of disruption, because of social media and and power structures that Washington and New York and Hollywood did not have. And I think that's the future of the Middle East. Now, If we start to ban folks that are critical of Islam or Islamophobia, as they call it, while some of that may be well-intended, the majority of it is not well-intended. It's pushed by theocrats out of Saudi Arabia, out of the OIC, in order to suppress free speech. Zuckerberg argued that new regulations are needed in four areas, harmful contact, protection of elections, privacy, and data portability. All looks well intended. All looks innocuous. Just data port privacy. Absolutely. I would tell you that you can't do any of this until we have an internet bill of rights, a social media free speech bill of rights. 
please start a movement. Begin the social media free speech bill of rights, because until we have that, these governments are going to start to regulate it away. I mean, as heinous and horrific as the New Zealand massacre was, the response, I don't think, honors the 51 that died. The two mosques that were shot up by the radical. Their gun rights were taken away within two or three days. Whatever you think about gun rights or gun control, the fact that it could be done so quickly, I don't even know what the checks and balances for New Zealand's constitution and their and their democracy is, but boy, that was just unbelievable, the rapidity in which that was done. Set aside the gun rights. Let's talk about free speech. The, the document of the terrorists that committed the act was made to be illegal if found on a computer, distributed on a thumb drive, or, or seen on a hard drive in anyone's possession in, in New Zealand. Could not even be referenced or quoted. So, so hold on a second. On the one hand, the left wants us to believe that ideology matters when it comes to white supremacists. But on the Islamist side, it doesn't matter. But yet we'll say this guy was related to white supremacism, but suppress his 50, 70-page manifesto. Which, by the way, he said the government that most appealed to him was China's in that manifesto, which I've read. So I'm not exactly sure that this guy's a white supremacist. He was obviously anti-immigration. Liked how China was dealing with the Uyghur Muslims. By the way, so did the king of Saudi Arabia, who lauded them as being strong against radical Islam, when in fact, Uyghur Muslims as being a source for Al-Qaeda or ISIS or others has been narrowly proved anywhere. And yet a million Muslims are in camps, being deprogrammed, forced to eat pork, forced to eat during Ramadan with no religious freedom. That is the example that the terrorists in New Zealand used. Hardly a white supremacist and hardly a right-winger. Just a crazed fanatic that was a tyrant. But we need to learn from this in order to appropriately analyze it. Did they make Mein Kampf illegal? Should we remove all the texts of genocidal individuals? Look at the Ba'ath Party in Syria. Most of their stuff should be removed. Why does the president of Syria still have a Twitter account? President underscore SY. He's a genocidal killer that has displaced 10 million and used chemical weapons and other weapons of mass destruction to kill over half a million. He still has a Twitter account, Mr. Zuckerberg. Still has a Facebook account. The UK was lauding some of the arrests of relatives of ISIS folks. What about Esma Esed's father, who's a heart surgeon in London and connected to the Assad lobby? Shut them down if you really believe in consistency when it comes to inspiration for jihad, for, for death, for destruction, for terror. 
So Zuckerberg has called for regulation to guarantee data portability between services. On harmful content, he said he agreed with lawmakers who've argued that we have too much power over speech, saying that third-party bodies could set standards on distribution of harmful material and measure companies against those standards. Whoa. And now we're starting to see credit cards deplatform groups and websites. We're starting to see paying companies deplatform individuals. Banks and others. This is, if we're ever going to defeat, I'm going to end on this. If we're ever going to defeat, I as a Muslim who loves my faith and love my country, if I'm ever going to be able to confront Salafi jihadism, Wahhabism, the, the militant, fundamentalist, draconian version of Islam that dominates so many of the Islamic establishment, we have to confront them because, and, and as we confront them, if you, if you look on, if you follow me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I, you will find that whenever I do confront them, they attack me, they, they, they deflect it, they, they do so anonymously, they never use their real names because they know that once we counter their ideas with an inspiration for freedom and liberty, they will lose. So they're going to use every method possible to avoid the argument and this is what this restriction of speech allows them to do. We can't, as heinous as certain acts of terror by hate groups on the other side, the mirror image of that can be, let's put this proportionally. Yes, the George Clooney's of the world are starting to address the Sharia law in which gays are killed by a Sharia law now imposed by Brunei's sultan. And they're boycotting the hotels. And we saw the 40 hotels owned by the Sultan of Brunei now deplatform themselves and lock all their social media accounts because of the pressure put on them by the world. But that's one little country. 400,000 people live in Brunei, ladies and gentlemen. What about the tens of millions in Iran that does the same thing for decades to gays? What about the tens of millions in Saudi Arabia? or other countries that might not be necessarily by their constitution Sharia states, but through their local laws enact Sharia. And engage with radicalization of advancement of radical groups through their endorsements on social media, governmental endorsements of heinous, anti-Semitic bigotry and language on, on websites and even at the UN. Please start carrying the ball to make a statement that we need a social media free speech bill of rights now. And it needs to trump all the other discussions about Facebook and Twitter and others trying to control. Yeah, they're private companies. They have a certain amount, obviously, of discretion of what can or cannot be done on their information highways. But we also need a Bill of Rights of the fact that if these people are going to operate under what's perceived to be free speech, then there needs to be an accountability to things that are not protected. And Islam is an idea. Ideas don't get protection. Human beings do. Ideas do not get protection. 
and groups of people who operate under an idea do not get protection. Whatever that might be. As always, ladies and gentlemen, it has been great to be with you. Thank you for spending this short time with me this week. I will always be here on Reform This. Find us on theblaze.com backslash podcast. Find me on SoundTunes. Uh, I'm sorry, iTunes and SoundCloud. Find me and, and subscribe and share this with others at SoundCloud and iTunes. And find us at theblaze.com backslash podcast. Yours truly, Zudi Jasser. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.